This is Sight in Africa. Welcome to episode four of this series from the LSE Fewer's Largest Center for Africa. My name is Sierra Mia Willoughby. Comparison is useful. That's because it can help an individual better understand his or her reality. Like the eminent Italian political scientist Giovanni Sartori once said, someone who just knows his country doesn't know anything. During this Sight in Africa series, we have been investigating the inequalities of the international education and research system, its impact on Africa-based scholars, and current efforts to bring about change. In this episode, we'll be crossing the South Atlantic Ocean to examine the evolution of Latin American studies over time. We will also examine efforts by organizations and scholars to improve North-South knowledge exchange and collaboration within the discipline, and see what lessons there may be for the discipline of African studies. For this episode, I am joined by my Sight in Africa colleague, Laura Mann, who is an assistant professor in the Department of International Development at LSE. Laura, I suppose a good place to start is to discuss whether there is a decolonizing the curricular movement in South America. Well, we've been speaking to Professor Mark Thurner, who's a professor of Latin American studies at the University of London, an emeritus professor at the Latin American Social Science Faculty, which is a network of departments for the study of Latin America. It's called uh, FLAXO for short. Uh, and he's also an emeritus professor at the University of Florida. And one of the reasons we want to talk to him is that he's the editor of a forthcoming volume called The First Wave of Decolonization. And he explained to us that decolonizing debates have been going on in South America for a very long time, since the 1820s. And he told us that one little known fact is that the term to decolonize was actually first coined in Peru in 1822. However, the actual process of decolonizing education and culture within South America has ebbed and flowed over time as the politics has shifted. It's remarkable to think that these debates started so long ago in Latin America. Yeah, as Professor Thurner pointed out, it's because the history of colonization itself is quite long. The first wave of decolonization took place in the Americas in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, um, so to give you one example, the Vice Royalty of Peru, uh, which is actually was much bigger than the Peru we know today, um, it was created in 1542 and Peru declared its independence in 1821. So it was before the so-called scramble for Africa and it was more than a century and a half before the third wave of decolonization that took place in Asia and Africa in the late mid 20th century. So, Laura, how have these debates evolved over time? Well, Mark Thurnham pointed out that every generation has some progress, but there's always a lot more work to be done. And he described how, when he was a young scholar in the late 1980s, he started getting very involved in global discussions with South Asianist and Africanist colleagues. Um, he mentioned Professor Shahid Amin from Delhi University, Professor Sourab Dubey from the Colegio de Mexico, Professor Dipesh Chakrabarti from the University of Chicago, Professor Stephen Fearman and Professor Louise White at the University of Florida. And they were basically trying to connect decolonization in Latin America with decolonization in Asia and Africa and make it more about global decolonization. Um, but discussions like these also had clear precedence among earlier generations of intellectuals, both within and beyond Latin America. 
The decolonization of education remains a concern for young Latin American academics today, as Maria del Pilar Lopez Uribe, assistant professor at the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia, told me. The movements that we have around this are not as strong as you, the ones that you can find in other places. However, I think that, you know, the, there are some kind of like narrative that are trying to change right now, especially with the uh, Eurocentric curriculums that we have in some universities right now. I mean, in, in my case, I'm also a historian, so um, I'm a professor of history, and we have to deal with these issues all the time, like trying to change this Eurocentric, uh, Eurocentric perspective, even in schools and also, you know, university level. So history around Europe uh, and not about, you know, like American history. So it's something that, that we're trying to, you know, that we're trying to change. Uh, it has been a, like a, a slow process. In fact, Dr. Maria Lopez Uribe is also currently involved in developing a South-South network of junior scholars from Latin America and Africa, which had its first meeting back in 2017. This was an initiative that... Um, you know, it started when I attend uh, the governance and development uh, workshop at Brown University, um, where actually, you know, these these BRE conference, uh, basically they, they, they bring together around 180 scholars from developing countries. So, you know, being there, I actually realized a lot about, you know, like the shared characteristics and history that we have between Latin America and Africa. I mean, not only in terms of like economics, but also in terms of social, political and institutional aspects. So I think, um, you know, the two continents face uh, similar contemporary challenges. Um, for example, I don't know, the mitigation of climate change in the face of population growth and increased demand for resources, uh, the provision of public goods, you know, in a context of globalized systems, but at the same time is going, you know, reduce autonomy and capacity of national governments. Um, and, you know, the big question of, of how, whether to incorporate societies into global final systems. Um, so, so, I mean, that, that was kind of like the initial, the initial idea. So once I went back to LSE, I, I actually proposed uh, the idea of organizing uh, this conference that, you know, brought together PhD students from Latin America and PhD students from Africa in, um, in South Africa. And, um, you know, we got an amazing reception from, from uh, LSE, from the African Center, from the ID department, and from the Latin American Center. Uh, and then, yeah, so we organized it, organized it uh, two years ago at the University of Cape Town. And uh, we got some funding from Brown. We got some funding from LSE, the African Center, and the Latin American Centers. And, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a, a workshop on governance and development in the global south. And this workshop has resulted in research collaborations between some participants. Maria Lopez Uribe again. There is a completely ignorance about African, African challenge in Latin America. And I actually, you know, talking with people working in, in Africa, there is also like, you know, they don't know much about Latin America and, you know, the problems that we face. But then this exchange actually brought a better knowledge uh, of the Turinians and, you know, like a knowledge about our similarities, even in different contexts. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, we, we actually learned more about, you know, Latin America and Africa and found similar cases to studies. Uh, and we start, I mean, there are two projects that are actually going on right now with co-authors that actually started at, the, at, the, at that conference. We also um, start a network that we kind of like keep about, you know, job positions, funding opportunities. Uh, it's like a, a network, an email network that we're kind of like um, since then. Uh, we have kept since then. And then we're actually trying to organize a new version of that conference this year um, in Sierra Leone. Uh, we're in the process to do. And the idea is that next year, in two years, we can actually organize one in Latin America. Thanks very much to Maria Lopez Uribe. Coming back to you now, Laura, did Maxana talk about how decolonizing debates have affected his discipline? Uh, well, Mark works in historiography, which is the study of the writing of history, uh, and he's an expert on 19th century Peruvian history in particular. And he told us that Peruvian historians from that era were consciously shaping their own history and trying to distinguish it from Spanish and imperial history as well as from European and North American history. Um, so there was this continual effort to use Peruvian sources, to use uh, native language sources and archaeology, um, and to write a history that was really responding to the interests of Peruvians. Have scholars been able to maintain this tradition down to today? Well, as Mark Thurner tells it, things began to change in the 20th century, as Latin American scholars were increasingly under pressure to copy European and North American historians. And this was due to the importance of what we might call a process of professionalization. More recently, the trend has been accentuated by the necessity of having to cite international journal articles and publish in English in those same journals. So there's a sense that the way that professionalization is currently understood and being promoted within academia might actually be hurting the decolonization of knowledge. It's becoming more and more necessary to show that you know the latest European and North American literature and in a sense to conform to the kind of hegemonic model of knowledge production. So in the process, there's a danger that academics might be neglecting their own scholarly traditions. Have there been any moves to reverse this process, Laura? Well, at the moment, Professor Mark Therner is heading La Global, which is a global research network focused on understanding Latin America's place within the history of knowledge. And this is a network being funded by the Leverhulme Trust. And part of what this network is trying to do is to resuscitate old lost traditions in what have now become disciplines such as historiography, anthropology, archaeology, botany um, and sociology. So these traditions have uh, largely been ignored within a global academy dominated by English and to a lesser extent French. And as one of our teammates commented, there's a bit of an irony within this project because it's effectively trying to encourage a more rigorous examination of knowledge production and the relationship between processes of knowledge production and our understandings. Um, and it's doing this precisely by asking scholars to go back to things that have been disqualified because they've been seen as not sufficiently rigorous. So Laura, how is that process being received? Yes, it seems there has been some resistance to this process, and it's because of those same systems of publication and promotion, that career pressure to publish in the right journals and to cite the right sources, the same sorts of things we found from within African countries as well. 
Um, but some inroads are being made. So, for example, Professor Mark Thurner told us about how PhD students at Flaxo in Ecuador are being encouraged to include forgotten sources and bibliography in their work, alongside citing the most recent work published in international journals. And this practice is spreading to other places as well. And the goal of this is that this new generation of scholars will produce work that takes into account their own archives, but in a more robust fashion, and therefore make it more acceptable on a global scale as good scholarship. This sounds like a fantastic programme, but can it really go global? Well, hopefully, yes. Um, so these doctoral students are also going to have the opportunity to take uh, postdoctoral posts in places like London, where they can receive support to publish some of their work in English in journals in which they would otherwise not be able to publish. Um, and the network sees this as really important because if these young scholars can't get their work into international journals, then some of the kind of disciplinary gatekeepers beyond the region are never going to read it. And especially if it's written in Spanish or Portuguese or even in non-European languages like Quechua and Aymara. Well, Laura, how easy or difficult would it be to set up a program like this at a university on the African continent? Um, so we can see this kind of tense balance between needing to conform to hegemonic practices, you know, publishing in English and trying to bring in um, non-hegemonic ideas and traditions and languages within the mainstream uh, paradigm. And we can see kind of how asymmetrical the power relations are. Well, I definitely think that it's a really beautiful idea and a beautiful approach because it's not just focused on providing writing and publishing support to these young scholars, but it's more importantly thinking precisely about how these young scholars might be able to revitalize their field and make the mainstream more reflective and more uh, attached to longer histories and processes of knowledge production within the societies that it's trying to explain. So I think that is quite um, an interesting and new way of thinking about the position, you know, the, the role that these writing workshops can play, not just in terms of supporting younger people and bringing voices in, but actually challenging and undermining the mainstream to make it more rigorous and more careful. Um, Although, again, we kind of see that it's very difficult to get away from the idea that the only legitimate knowledge is knowledge that has been produced and circulated within English. Um, and it would be interesting to think about how the project, the pr process can also be reversed, you know, and so that more mainstream um, ideas and mainstream scholarship can be translated not just into Spanish and Portuguese, but also into uh, non-European languages like Quechua and Aymara. Um, as far as whether or not it can be uh, set up in a university within an African country, which was what your question was about, um, I'm sure it can, and it's possible that it already such 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 uh, ideas are already in action. Um, I'm not necessarily that well versed in oral history and these other kinds of approaches that might be used. But if it's not a model that's already in action, then I think it's something to think about to extend these writing and publishing workshops to explicitly focus on sort of the, the combining of sources from international journals, but also intentionally using young scholars to revitalize the field of African studies as well, or development studies in relation to Africa. 
Clearly, a lot more thought needs to go into the work produced by some of these young scholars so that it gets published on a global level. Laura, how important is it for publication in international journals for promotion in Latin American universities? So Mark Thurner pointed to some studies that have recently been done about this problem. Um, and specifically, he mentioned one that was carried out by Emeritus Professor of Political Economy at Flaxo and the University of Florida, and also the former one of the former presidents of the Latin American Studies Association, LASA, um, Professor Carmen Diana Dia. And Professor Dia found that for Latin American faculty to succeed, it's necessary to publish in international journals to gain recognition. Um, and in some ways, this mirrored what some of my interviews when I was in the in Ghana last year also revealed that publishing in many local journey, journals doesn't carry the same weight as international journals, even if the work is more original and even if it's better. Um, and in her study, Professor Dia suggests a number of reforms in the way that Latin American faculty should be evaluated for, for promotion. However, the challenge of the previous system was that there was quite a lot of clientelism or cronyism in the sense that an individual could publish in a French journal and gain national exposure. So there was a sort of weaker quality control, you might say. So there really needs to be really strong peer review process as well as sort of shifting away from the reliance on international journals at the same time domestic journals need to be strengthened at the same time. Um, and she recommended academic panels of scholars from different countries and different linguistic backgrounds to kind of strengthen that peer review process across both the North and the South. So in her opinion, things might be moving in that direction, but there's still a lot of work to be done. How much interaction is there between scholars in Latin America and the global North? Yeah, there is a tremendous amount of interaction, in, particularly in North America and Spain. Not so much the UK, because obviously Latin America was not formally part of the British Empire and there are those language barriers. Uh, Spain obviously, understandably, has a kind of more vibrant community due to its kind of history in South America and, and the language links. Uh, the U.S. is an interesting case because many Latin American academics were either born or trained in the U.S. Um, and in many ways, this is the way in which the U.S. is also becoming once again more Latin American. I know this myself from growing up in Los Angeles and seeing how, you know, local government and city government is increasingly becoming much more representative and therefore much more Latin American. Um, so it's understandable that there's these kind of much stronger traditions of collaboration and knowledge exchange through migration and through the diaspora. Um, although it might be interesting to think about whether Latin Americans who are trained or brought up in America, um, you know, do successfully kind of unsettle and, and revitalize mainstream thinking and mainstream methodologies within the U.S., or whether they effectively get trained into them, you know, and end up sort of reproducing the same old, same old. Um, that's not something I know the answer to, but it's it's interesting perhaps to think about it, whether it's, it is language ties or cultural background that makes a difference, or whether it's about uh, sort of specific training and the specific kinds of things that Mark Thurner's uh, project is looking at in terms of lost traditions and more engaged uh, scholarship. I can imagine, Laura, that conferences are very useful in building interaction between scholars in the global North and Latin America. 
Absolutely. And I think it's very interesting to see how the Latin American Studies Association, which is also known as LASA, has evolved in how it holds its conferences. So back in the 1980s, for example, conferences were always held within the US and about 80 to 90 percent of the members were US based. Um, although it's worth mentioning, um, as we were just talking about, that being based in the US doesn't necessarily mean that the members weren't Latin American or from Latin American backgrounds. Um, so even back then, there would be a lot of people at these meetings speaking fluent Spanish, Portuguese, and Creole, and other languages. Um, today, however, the majority of LASA members are based actually in Latin America. It's no longer a northern organization, and meetings can be held anywhere. Uh, usually, they alternate between the U.S. and Latin America. One recent meeting was held in Barcelona, and in fact, that was the first ever to be held in Europe. Um, and this, yeah, it does give ample time for networking, although in the opinion of uh, Professor Mark Thurner, it is almost too, too much networking, he said. So his view is that Lassa is very much turning into an empire and suggests that maybe ultimately Lassa should split into four or five more autonomous regional organizations. Wow, Laura, it sounds like the LASA meetings are the must-attend event of the year. Well, I'm not surprised when you have 12,000 members or you have 900 sessions at each of the annual congresses. Uh, so I can see why Mark Thurness says the organization is almost becoming too big. Uh, it's becoming very apparent in how the conference is actually organized. So section coordinators are actually appointed for each discipline or area, and it's their responsibility to put together panels and this is actually quite important and quite careful work because you don't just want to kind of uh, reinforce insular networks where people are effectively just presenting to people they already know. You've got to think about how, how do you bring people together? How do you allow for new connections to be formed? And when an organization is too big, it becomes more and more difficult to really do that in a careful way. Um, within LASA, there are actually explicit rules on representation for gender and ethnicity, um, and panels are held in different languages like Spanish or Portuguese as well as English. Um, and this trend for a multiplicity of languages is now extending to some of the big journals where you can publish in Spanish and Portuguese as well as in English. Thanks very much for that, Laura. And it seems that other academics share this view that the LASA meetings are slightly unwieldy. Let's hear again from Maria del Pilar Lopez Uribe. I think the association is quite well organized, but there is a huge problem of how they put everything together. So there is a huge heterogeneity within the scholars, uh, inclusion of different disciplines and you know, the perspective, how they approach the regions and the problems of the regions kind of you know, is is different to what I'm used to. And I think the interactions of, you know, like among people of similar interests uh, is is quite important. But I think like sometimes there is a problem when they're organizing this huge conference around it. Dr. Maria Lopez Uribe there. It's interesting to note, Laura, that LASA seems to have absorbed all Latin American scholars around the globe whereas African studies seems more fragmented with organizations in North America, the United Kingdom, Europe, and even Africa itself. I think African studies is more fragmented, but I also think that it is, you know, the, the meetings that happen in Europe and the US, in, in my experience, uh, tend to be organized in such a way that 
you don't have that exchange and you don't necessarily have that opportunity to meet uh, new people. In some ways, you know, people, they want to know that they're going to have good panels. And so I guess there is a tendency to stick with the people who you know. And so you kind of think about how you can put together a coherent panel with people working on the same thing. Um, but I think something is lost in that because you don't end up meeting any new people. And, you know, there's something sad, very sad about that. So, Laura, what are our takeaways from this episode then? Um, I do think that some of the things from the last meetings might be really interesting to think about, about uh, sort of having more diverse languages. In the past, when that's happened at ECAS, you know, when there has been a French speaker, I think it would have been useful to have kind of translators on hand. Um, I think this is something interesting to think about, kind of the role of translation in making uh, regional studies uh, more international and more inclusive and more rigorous. Um, my colleague, Professor Tandika Makandawure, is always reminding me about how within Scandinavia or Japan, you know, they spend a huge amount of money on translation because they feel that it's really important to not just be international, but also to make their countries and their studies more engaged and, and not just kind of uh, re rely on translating and doing everything in English. So I think that translation is not something that has been thought enough about. Um, I mean, even when it comes to European languages within African studies, there are big divides between Francophone and Anglophone, uh, not to mention sort of non-European languages as well. Um, this project has actually made me think a lot about how I need to spend a lot more time translating my own work into Arabic, maybe into Kinyarwanda, maybe into Swahili, to make it a bit more accessible and also to open myself up to a bit more uh, feedback and criticism from the country, people in the countries that I study. Um, it's something that often when you have career incentives pushing you towards things that you let to, you know, fall to one side because you think I don't have time to do this. But actually, I think it is, you know, perhaps one of the most important things that we could do is, is you know, not just making it about helping people to publish more in English, but thinking about how we should be publishing our work in other languages as well. Um, in terms of other lessons, from the experience of Latin American conferences that we've gleaned from this project. Um, I think obviously having more conferences within Africa, uh, thinking about parts of the world where everybody can get visas, um, and also putting the fire under non-African scholars to expose themselves more to feedback and criticism from within the countries that they study. Uh, I think those are some lessons we can definitely learn. Thank you very much, Laura Mann, for joining me for this episode and sharing some of the insights of Professor Mark Thurner. Thanks also to Dr. Maria Lopez Uribe. Do you have anything to add? Let's talk about it on Twitter using the hashtag SightInAfrica. In our next episode, we will look at the role of conferences in promoting knowledge exchange and collaborations in the global north and south. I'm Sierra Mia Willoughby. Thank you for listening to Sight in Africa. Sight in Africa was funded by the LSE Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund, the LSE Department of International Development, and the Review of African Political Economy 
Journal.